So, uh, so two weeks ago, for those of you who were with us, we finished a sermon series. Does anybody remember the name of that sermon series? Hey, Carol gets the gold star. Good job. She was the first one to answer correctly. It was a little test to see how far back your memory goes. If you remembered something from two weeks ago, <laughs> I struggled to remember something that happened last week. So don't feel bad if you forgot. We did finish a series called Choices last uh, two weeks ago. But listen, that, that does not mean that the preaching of sermons that demand decisions has come to an end, okay? Just because the Choices series came to an end does not mean that we're not going to be challenging you to make choices. Last week, we began a new series from uh, the book of First Peter on the right attitude and the right posture and perspective that Christians should have concerning life in the end times because, ready or not, Jesus Christ is coming back and coming back soon, so now as we turn this morning to the next few verses of this chapter that we're sort of making our way through here, um, we're going to find ourselves being confronted once again with another choice, another uh, set of options, and we get to choose uh, what we're going to do with that. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 17. This is uh, picking up where we left off last week in verse 13. If you grab the guest Bible, we're on page 978. Hear the word of the Lord through the apostle, verse 14. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am. Am holy. And remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of Him during your time here as temporary residents. And I like how the NLT puts temporary residents in the quotes. It's as if it's an expression. We're, we're just passing through. We're, this isn't our home, is it, Pastor Jeff? We're, we're heading to home. We're almost home, but we're not. We're not there yet. Now, Peter sets before the reader here, beginning uh, in verse 14, two opposing ways of life. I don't know if you detected that yet, but we're going to take some time to to draw that out and explore that a little bit. The first uh, way of, of living life is living as God's obedient children. And the second is slipping back into the old patterns of life that defined our lives before Christ. Now, the ESV, which is an, another translation that we, that we love and, and make reference to here at this church for, on occasion, the ESV in verse 14 renders it like this. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, I'm wondering if anybody has a different translation than the NLT or the ESV, if you have ignorance in your translation. Just raise your hand if you have ignorance in your translation. Okay, there's just a handful of you there. Well, that, that word ignorance comes from the Greek word agnoia. You, you can write that down in your notes if you want. It's your Greek less, word lesson for the day. You can go out of here and say, I learned uh, New Testament Greek this morning. The Greek word agnoia, which the NLT renders as, you didn't know any better then. In other words, in your old life, before you came to Christ, there were certain realities that you were oblivious to. Your life wasn't marked by the certainty of what Christ has done or that Christ is coming back and therefore you lived under a different set of assumptions concerning the future. Indeed, if, if this is all that there is to live for in our ignorance, well then 
Let's eat and drink and be merry, as they say. Let's, let's live it up. Let's, make, let's indulge and make the most of the time we have. Let's carpe diem. Let's seize the day while we can. And there's, there's, some, there's something to be redeemed from that. That's not an, an entirely a terrible way of living. Of course we want, I just prayed a moment ago that we would redeem the time, that we would make use of opportunity. And absolutely. But those who, who have come to Christ have a different set of assumptions and a different set of certainties about what the future holds than those who haven't yet. The gospel of Jesus Christ and its impact on our lives has changed our view of the future entirely. And with all due respect to the NLT, which I love the NLT. I, mean, I preach from it every Sunday. We, every Bible we've purchased for this room and for the teens for the last several years has been a New Living Translation. But with all due respect, where the NLT says, you didn't know any better then, that's not good enough for me. Because agnoia is more than just simply not knowing any better. There's more, there's more meaning to that word than just pure innocence, pure innocent ignorance. When I was, one of my earliest memories as a human being comes from when I was about three or four years old. We lived out in the, we called the country. Uh, we, were, we lived in Northern Virginia at the time. Um, You've probably heard of Purcellville, Virginia. Some of you, some of you are from Purcellville, Virginia, for crying out loud, over here. Uh, we lived out in the country, out in a little area called North Fork. Um, to me, it, it was like we lived in Egypt. It was so far from civilization. We lived out in the middle of nowhere. And one of my earliest memories, I was about three or four years old, and, I, and it's just, just, all I have is just like pictures. It's not even a, a, a full memory, but I remember standing in the driveway facing the garage door. My dad was working in the garage, and I said something, and I could not tell you to this day what I said, but apparently what I said was a bad word, something I wasn't supposed to say. And I'll never forget the look on my dad's face. Just the, I could tell whatever I said was not going to cut it. And he looked at me and said, do not say that word again. I'll never forget it. It left such an impression on me. Now, I don't remember the word, so who knows what I actually said. Um, and who knows where I heard it. I mean, that's the other side of the thing, but we won't go there. I had no, I was completely ignorant that what I said was wrong. And, and surely you have had a time in your life where you've done something that, that was wrong or violated some rule or some person, and you were completely innocent with regards to your heart. You had no idea that what you're doing was wrong, and you would never have done it if you did. And, and there is there's this, this sense that you're not culpable for your ignorance. That's not what Peter is talking about. He's not talking about pure, innocent, childlike ignorance. And I know that because of how that same word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's never that. If we were to flip over to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, and you can do that in your Bibles if you want, or I believe it's going to be on the screen. If we flip over to, by the way, that word agnoia only appears four times in the New Testament. So if we flip over to another one of its uses, we go to Ephesians chapter 4, which in my study this week I discovered for the first time in my life how incredibly parallel the, the thought of Paul in this chapter is to the thought of Peter in the chapter we're in. It's incredible. Now, I did a little bit of just side research, and I, I, I discovered that these two letters were written within two years of each other, and they were written generally to the same kind of region of people. So it's, it's as if both the apostles had their finger on the pulse of Asia Minor. <laughs> they, knew what was going, they knew what was in the hearts and minds of their flocks, they were both concerned with what was going on. And who knows, maybe there was some coordination in their, 
in their, the things that they were writing, but I tend to view it as the Holy Spirit was, was pressing upon each of them what were the urgent needs of these churches. And so what we find is these two chapters, which seemingly have nothing to do with each other, actually are saying pretty much the same thing. And so if we were to flip over to Ephesians chapter 4, we find in verses 17 through 19, the Apostle Paul says this, With the Lord's authority I say this, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives them. God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. Now, the NLT there in verse 18 says they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts. But a better translation is probably something like this. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance, the agnoia, on account of the hardness of their hearts. Now, do you see the connection there? Do you see the, uh, the fuller, deeper meaning of what agnoia is actually talking about? This isn't just pure, innocent, childlike ignorance. Oh, I just didn't know any better. That's why I boo-booed. No. No, the apostle Paul sees agnoia as a, as a willful ignorance. A willful ignorance that comes from a heart that is hardened and calloused and rebellious against the things of God. It's, it's the defiance of a sinner who says, I choose not to know, I choose not to live according to truth because I don't want to. Agnoia is a willful, rebellious ignorance. And it is one that sinful humanity will be held accountable for. It's not the type that you are not culpable for. It is the culpable kind of ignorance. Indeed, Acts 17, verses 30 through 31. Here's one of those other examples of this word appearing in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says in his sermon. He says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now it's different. The times have changed. He says, now God commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. This isn't the, the child in the driveway who said a bad word and had to be corrected by dad. No, this is an ignorance that is lamentable, especially in light of the return of Christ. Peter's saying, don't go back to that. Don't go back to that former way of life where you lived in a willful ignorance was produced from a heart that was hard. Those who have come to Christ know better. Therefore, you and I must live better than that. We saw already last week in verse 13, those who, have, who belong to Christ and anticipate his return, we live with a ready hope that is watchful and sober and self-controlled. There's a, there's a difference that Christ makes regarding the future that impacts how we live in the present. You and I don't live today or 
are not to live today to satisfy our own desires. That is the opposite of the readiness that we're called to. So Peter's exhortation is to not fall back into that old, hardened, ignorant, rebellious way of life. And and it's helpful to remember here who he's writing this to. Right? It's, it's easy to hear, sometimes we hear the scriptures and we don't take, take the time and the effort to understand who's the audience, right? Who, who, who is this message for? And that's not to say that there's times where the Bible's not speaking to you. Of course the Bible's always speaking to us. But it's helpful to un, in, in the attempt to uh, interpret the scriptures properly to understand who the audience, the original audience was. And then by extension we can hear perhaps even better how the Lord might be speaking to us. And the answer to the question is, of, of who he's writing to here is, is pretty simple. It's, it's who? Is he writing to the, not, the non-believer? Is he writing to the atheist? Is he writing to the skeptic? Is he even writing to the, the unbelieving Jew? No, he's writing, he's writing to the Christian. He's writing this to the Christian. And by extension, he's, he's saying it to you and to me today. He's writing to those who trust Christ. He's writing to those who, who believe in Jesus, who, who say that they have hope, not just in what he has done, but what he, in what he's going to do. And if it is true that he's writing to Christians, what does that mean then? Well, it means that at the very least, that it is possible for the Christian to revert to a former way of life. It's possible. To, to fall into that death spiral of, of sin and indulgence and to do so counting on this false hope or some sort of false assurance. One that presumes upon God's mercy at the expense of his holiness. One that says, I, I, can, I can live that way if I want to. I can, I can indulge in these things. I, I can partake in these things. I can do these things because it doesn't really matter to God because, because I came to Jesus and, and I'm covered by the blood and so it kind of doesn't matter really how I live my life. It's not insignificant to me that Peter says in verse 17 that God has no favorites. As if there's one standard of judgment for this and another standard of judgment for that. As if he's going to look at this person's life one way and that person's life another way. He's going to judge all the world according to one standard. And it's the standard of his son. And you and I have to ask, what does that mean for me as a Christian? When I hear the warnings of the New Testament that says, don't go back to your formal way of life. Don't fall back into the, the ignorance and the hardness of heart that wants to find you before you came to Jesus. And as I think about the apostles writing this message, this kind of message to this church, I ask myself, well, what possible belief system, what possible frame of mind mind could they have had that would have warranted such, such a warning? Well, maybe one that says that we can just live however we want, <laughs> indistinguishable from the world without it having any bearing on our eternal destiny when Christ returns, that I can live for me, that I can partake of, of, of and indulge in the fleshly desires and pleasures that, that for whatever reason I crave in my life, that it's not going to matter in the end. I would say, Christian, beware. 
Beware of that mentality. Beware of that worldview or that, persp- that mind space that says, because of what Jesus did for me once upon a time in the past of my life, that it doesn't matter how I live now. Beware of that. That's a very dangerous place to live for anybody, but especially for us here in these last days. There is, and listen, I'm not a doom and gloomy type of person, all right? And I don't, for those, maybe there's some of you here who are more newer, maybe you're feeling like, wow, he's awful negative here this morning. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm trying to be honest with what the scriptures are saying to my life and to your life. I want to be, I want to be honest. I want to be objective and then allow the Holy Spirit to take these objective truths and apply them subjectively to my life and to yours. But there's a very real scenario that is described elsewhere in Hebrews chapter 6 where, quote, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, then turn away from God. Did you hear that? Those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is the gift to the believer. Hebrews 6 is not the awakened sinner. Hebrews 6 is the the follower of Jesus. Those who have partaken of the Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the power of the age to come, the eschaton, the end of time has broken into their lives. There's a possibility that they might turn away. And what he's talking about there, admittedly, is full-on apostasy. That is a renunciation of the faith entirely. And I wouldn't say that Peter is talking about that necessarily here. But what I would say is that Peter is talking about the process by which one gets there. How does someone move from a place of, of, of being in right relationship to God and, and partaking of the Holy Spirit and tasting of the goodness of God's word and, and in, in whom the, the eschaton, the, the, the final things of, of God have been crashing into the present in their lives? How do they ever move from a place like that to what the writer of Hebrews chapter 6 is saying? It's when we choose to walk according to the old patterns of our life before Christ. It's when we operate out of a false assurance. Now listen, I'm all for assurance, and next week we're going to talk about assurance because it's important. I want to talk about certainty and assurance and security. But we're never going to talk about any type of security or assurance that doesn't take seriously the warnings of the New Testament. And Peter is very clear here. You have a choice. In light of the coming of Christ, will you pattern your life after God, as a child of God, or you pattern your life after your former way of life, your ignorance that was willful and stubborn and rebellious that came from a hardened heart. Peter's talking about the process by which we move from a place of blessing to a place of apostasy. And that is a, that, this area here in between is a very slippery slope to live your life. It's a very dangerous place to live your life. Because in in every willful sin, it may not be full-on apostasy where you've renounced your faith, but in every sin lies the seed of apostasy that that can grow and mature and 
put down roots and begin to bear fruit that may very well result in an outright denial and rejection and renunciation of Christ and his authority and his power and his rightful claim over your life. And if it wasn't a concern, friends, then why did Peter or Paul or the writer of Hebrews spill a single drop of ink talking about it? It's absolutely a concern. Now, as those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted in the goodness of the word and, and the power of the age to come, as those who have experienced that, you and I must follow a different pattern. Remember, we, we started with the choice, didn't we? You have a choice here. God's not going to make you do it. He's not going to do it for you. He will help you. And that's another thing that we'll get to towards the end of the message. A choice lies before us. And you and I have to choose this day to follow a different pattern than the pattern of the world or the pattern of your life before you came to Christ. And that is the pattern, as he says here in our verses here, of our Heavenly Father. We are to live, there in the beginning of verse 14, as his obedient children. That is morally distinguishable from the world. Holy as God is holy, verses 15 and 16. In what? In some of the things you do? Sometimes, no, no, we are to be morally distinguishable from the world. We are to follow the pattern of the Father. We are to be holy as God is holy in everything you do. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just on Wednesday nights, not just with one particular friend group. Maybe you have a friend group here at the church. You get together for your little life group. Everyone puts on their your Christian Jesus smile, right? There's certain vocabulary you use and certain vocabulary you don't use. And there's certain types of entertainment you may engage in. There's certain types of entertainment you don't engage in. And you have sort of like your sacred, your sacred space, but then you have your like little, maybe you have a different like secular space. Maybe you have a little, you know, pocket of, of your life where you don't have to have the Christian, Christianese. You don't have to speak in Christianese. You can you know, use different words. You know, you can do different kinds of things for entertainment. You can have different value, a different value system. And there's this sort of like distinguishing mark that divides your, the sacred and the secular in your life. Do you think that's, do you think that's what, what Peter's talking about? Is he saying, hey, be holy as God is holy on Sunday mornings. When you're with your Christian friend group. I don't hear that. In fact, I hear the opposite. I hear that the holiness of God that is at work in your life is to touch every part of your person. It is to be expressed in every part of your life so that, that in me there is no sacred secular divide. That in my life there is no, there is no double-mindedness. Do you believe that God can do a work in your life where you are no longer a double-minded Christian? I sure hope you do because as negative as, as maybe some of this sounds, I hope you hear the optimism in what I'm saying. That there is a possibility, yes, there is a possibility that, that, you could slip, that you could slip into a place where you perhaps one day full on renounce your faith. It is possible. Oh, but the other side of that is so much more glorious. That is possible that you could live a life of single-minded, single-hearted devotion to God. That whatever line that divides the sacred and secular in your life has been demolished into where every moment is secular. It's, 
every moment is sacred. That the Holy Spirit has touched every, every, every part of who you are. And maybe, maybe there's, there's always going to be more for him to do. There's always going to be greater degrees of holiness. You're never going to arrive this side of heaven, of course. But is there any part of your life that you're reserving for you? God, you can touch everything else. This is for me. I think Peter's saying, no, no, be holy in everything. Let the, let the holiness of God touch every dimension of your personhood. May, may it be expressed in every relationship, in every moment of time, in every group that you're a part of, in every venue, every day of the week. It's all Jesus, all the time for you. What if you could live a life where you no longer served multiple masters? Oh, doesn't that sound wonderful? To not have a divided loyalty. And you can fill in the blank who the masters in your life are. But at the end of the day, if there's any other master than the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have a divided loyalty. And I believe that there's a work of grace available to you in this life to where you can say with 100% confidence and honesty that Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord. That he can be God alone. No other gods before him. All of him, I give all of me. Every moment of the day, all of me for him consecrated to and sanctified by him. Friends, there's an urgency in the scriptures to this reality. There's an urgency in the scriptures to this command to be holy as God is holy, especially with the end of time in view. The return of Jesus will at once be both a time of final salvation, but also a time of final judgment. Therefore, we, as Peter says there in verse 17, we with reverent fear, must be deliberate in how we choose to pattern our lives today. And Paul echoes this. Here we are. We're going back to the parallel passage. I'm telling you, spend, spend an hour this week in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, and, and Ephesians chapter 4, going into chapter 5. And just write on a piece of paper, outline. What, okay, here's a chunk of verses. What is the main idea here? Just write it down and compare the two. And I'm telling you, it's, parallel, it's, it's essentially the same thing. So we go back to Ephesians chapter 5, and Paul is going to echo what Peter is saying here. And Ephesians 5, 1, by the way, begins with a therefore, which tells us to do what? What do we do when we see therefore? Do we read ahead to the end? No. We call time out, and we look back. What, what preceded the therefore of chapter 5? Well, let me summarize chapter 4 for you in its entirety. I read, I read a few verses a second ago. Let me just summarize the, the entire chapter here. Uh, point number one, you have been called by God to live a certain kind of life. He has given everything you need to become mature. That word, Greek word teleos, which means mature, complete, or perfect. He's given you everything you need. He, he hasn't withheld anything from you. If you think that you can't be mature or complete or perfect, not absolute perfection, like philosophically perfect. I mean, perfect as the Bible envisions perfection, being the totality of what God has designed and created you to be. If you, if you believe that you cannot be that, it's not because God has withheld something from you. He's given you everything you need 
to be mature in Christ. You are therefore to put on your new nature. You have to put it on, which is created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Therefore, so we summarize chapter four, therefore, chapter five, verse one, be imitators of God as beloved children. Because, verse five, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. You hear all the same elements are there. It's the same message. Don't slip back into your old ways of living. Live no longer like the Gentiles do. You hear it? As God's children, be holy just as God is holy. Be imitators of God as God's beloved children. It's the same message. Do you hear its urgency? That's what I care about. Not so much that you're able to connect the dots between different books and passages in the scriptures. I think as good Bible students, I want you to learn to do that. I want you to practice that in your life. And there's an abundance of tools available for you to do that in your Bible study time. And I'll tell you, there's nothing more significant to me than when I'm in my own Bible study time or my own sermon prep time and, and through the, the, the resources that I am drawing upon or just through the, the work of the Spirit and the, the time of preparation, the connecting of dots is so significant to my heart. It's like, like these, these moments of just eureka. Like, I can't believe what I just discovered. I can't believe that it was there all this time and it was just, just this treasury of truth and wisdom and life that's just been sitting here collecting dust far too often. It's just waiting for me to discover it. And I want you to discover it. But more importantly for right now, I want you to feel and sense and perceive the urgency of it. I want you to feel I want you to hear, I want you to perceive the warning of it. But perhaps most importantly, I want you to feel and experience and perceive and embrace the invitation of it. I want you to feel invited. Listen, you and I are not in this passage and in Ephesians 4 going into 5 and Hebrews chapter 6 and elsewhere. You and I are not merely warned against falling back into an old pattern of life in order to avoid the wrath of God to come. It's there. (laughs) We spent the last, what, 15 or 20 minutes talking about it. And we need to acknowledge it and face it and, and be real about it. But that's not just all that's there. It's not just warning. We are invited this day, to enter more deeply into the blessing and into the freedom and into the life as a child of God. Friends, holiness is not some slavish compliance with the impossible demands of some impersonal, unfeeling tyrant. The the angry deity is up there waiting to grind me to a pulp the next time I cross him. That's not holiness. It's not even remotely close to holiness. That's not reverent fear. I don't think that's biblical fear at all. That, that's the fear of, of judgment, of, the, of the, the one who doesn't know God as Father. That's not the fear of the Christian. That's not holiness. Holiness is a, instead, it's a, a new way of life that is made possible by the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, and by the outpouring of his spirit. 
It's freedom from the penalty and the power and the misery and the bondage of sin. It is the joy of a heart made whole, of the radical transformation of our very person. He doesn't just do something to me. He does something in me. It makes me something different from the inside out to become God's own masterpiece. Holiness is the power to live like Christ that he might be made known by and glorified through my life in this world. Your life can point people to God actually. Not just the things you say when you're using Christianese, but every word, every action, every attitude, in every venue, you can live a life that bears fruit for the kingdom of God because of the power of him at work in making you holy as he is holy. Holiness is living in right relationship with God, but also with man. It is faith working itself out in love. Love that is made perfect and whole and complete. It's the very love of God shed abroad in your heart. It's not you mustering up good feelings towards another. It is the inexhaustible supply of God's own nature and being that is poured in you and through you for the world. Now the world and the flesh and the devil would love nothing more than for you to hear these things and, and, view whole, and continue to view holiness purely as mere drudgery. Right, it's just something that you, when you think about the topic and you think of the idea, the concept, you hear that word and you're triggered and suddenly it's something to, be, something to dread. The world, the flesh, and the devil would love nothing more than for holiness to be drudgery to you. Or to be just something that is meaningless. It's just the words that the pastor says on Sunday morning. It has no bearing on my life, really. I mean, he lives in the church parking lot. Of course he can talk about holiness all the time because he never leaves the church doesn't touch my life. I actually have to leave this place. I actually have to go back into the world. I, I work with, with non-believing co-workers, and I, I have unbelieving family members, and, and I'm surrounded by, by all the temptations. You think, you, you think I live in a bubble? Guess again. <laughs> a lot of you have seen me in Walmart. Goodness gracious, I feel like sometimes I'm at Walmart more than my own house. The world and the flesh and the devil would love nothing more than for you to view holiness as drudgery, something that is meaningless, that has no real, yeah, it's for the pastor, it's for the, it's for the, the elder, it's for the deacon, it's for the choir member, it's not for me. The world, the flesh, and the devil would love nothing more than for you to view holiness as something that is impossible. It's that, just another one of those obnoxious Bible carrots just dangling out in front of me that I'm supposed to reach for but never actually get to. Listen, that gets taught in the majority of evangelical churches. Sure, the Bible commands us to be holy, but God knows you're not. You're just gonna be a sinner every day. And frankly, I think a lot of you think that way. I've heard it. And I'm not judging you. I'm not even criticizing. I, my heart breaks because we're missing the invitation of the scriptures to enter into the fullness of what his grace can do in your life today. God wants us to see holiness as the very essence, the very goal of salvation itself, his grace at work in us that we might become like him. Not a set of do's and don'ts, 
not perfect knowledge and obedience to an endless encyclopedic list of directives and prohibitions. No, I'm talking about a steady stream of holy love flowing from a transformed heart that has been touched by and filled with the very life of God all by grace through faith from beginning to end. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, once said, I found this, I never, all the years I've studied Wesley and all the sermons I've read and all the research, I've never come across this, this quote and it refreshed and rejuvenated my soul. He said, holiness is the proper companion and guard to hope. Think about that. Listen, that's deep. That's deep. That holiness is the proper companion and guard to hope. In other words, if you have, if you've placed your hope in what God has done, and if you have a ready, steadfast, sober, watchful hope for his return and what he's going to do, then you must have holiness come alongside of you as a friend. You, you need both realities in your life together. And as a good friend, holiness will protect and watch over your hope and keep it safe and, and healthy and centered. Both hope and holiness look back and ahead. Both are grounded in the past while anticipating the future. Both are evidence of your salvation. I will never preach intentionally, and maybe I misunderstood at times, probably more often than not, but in my heart, I never intentionally preach that either hope or holiness are the the source of your salvation. As though God will, he'll give you his grace once once you have hope and holiness. No, the only condition of, his gra- of receiving grace in your life is faith. But what is the evidence of it in your life? What is the evidence of faith in the, in, that receives the grace of God? What God has offered you freely, what God has done for you, and you have received it by faith, what is the fruit? Hope and holiness. They are the evidence of your salvation. They prove the reality of faith in a God who saves and sanctifies to the uttermost. And it is only when holiness and hope come together that we can say we are living rightly in these last evil days. A hopeful people are a ready people, sober, alert, self-controlled, watchful for the master's imminent return. A ready people are a determined people. They make a choice. They are determined to live a certain way in the present as a response to the past, but also with anticipation of the future. And a a determined people will be a holy people who follow the pattern of Jesus, not the world, not the pattern of the flesh, not the pattern of life that you once lived before you came to him. A holy people who live in light of salvation past and judgment to come, who are empowered by God himself. Listen, if you call him father, that means you're his child. 
That means you have been, by grace through faith, begotten of him. That his nature is now in you. His power, his holiness, his love, his life. Jesus said, as I abide in the Father, I abide in you, in you and me. You want to know where the source of holiness is? It's that right there. It's when your life and Christ's life converge. And he abides in you by the power of his spirit and you abide in him. And then suddenly his properties transfer to you. When you can fully say, Christ is my life, well, then you're going to be, you're going to experience something that is unleashed in your life that could not happen otherwise. God will do something in you that he created you for and has saved you for. You can become truly his masterpiece. Is your hope, friends, a ready hope? And is your ready hope a holy hope? Now, I'm done preaching, but maybe some of you have business still to do. There's a place where you can come and pray. You can come and confess your needs to the Lord. You can cry out to him. You can repent. You can, you can praise. You can respond. I invite you to respond. Um, if you come to this side, I'll just trust that you just want to be left alone. Maybe if you come to this side, I'll take that as you would like me to come pray with you. How, we, how about we do it that way? That way you know which way to go if you feel led to come. But as Pastor Jeff and the worship team come and close us out, after I pray, um, this is your invitation to please respond. As, and, and maybe your response is just telling the person next to you, hey, would you pray for me about this? Maybe you just need to write something on a communication card. I don't know. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to apply these things to your life, and I'm, I'm asking you to respond to him. So if that means doing business up here, then do it. If it means business with a neighbor, do it. If it means writing something on a card, do it. Or whatever else it is, please obey him. He is, he is your master, not, not the pastor. No king pastor in this church. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you that, um, that the scriptures bear warning, but also, and more importantly, they, they invite us. We are, we are welcomed into the fullness of, of the life that Jesus Christ bled for. He didn't just die and rise again and ascend into heaven and send his spirit that we would feel good or that we would just have the past wiped, the slate wiped clean, as grateful as we are for that. No, you came that you might come into our lives completely that you might abide entirely, that who you are would radically touch and transform who we are. And, and we're given the, the choice today to say yes to that or to say no to that. Lord, I, I pray that every person here, regardless of how much they agree with me or not, at the very least, Lord, I pray that every person here would, from a place of faith, Say yes to whatever you're telling them personally. Maybe it's just one small thing in their lives that they feel a little, little prick, a little nudge of conviction. 
Lord, it's in the small things where faith is really tested, in my opinion. Because for every small thing that we, we dismiss or excuse, it can, it can start the avalanche. Next thing we know, it, we're, we're swarmed by falling rocks, inundated by crushing wave of sin and rebellion and failure and shame. Lord, I pray if there's just a small thing that you would make that known to each of our hearts, that we would respond in obedience. And Lord, in that, in that moment, we would come to experience the, the power that you've made possible over the world, the flesh, and the devil at work in our lives. May there be a, an optimism here in this church about what you can and will do in our lives. If we just say yes to you, Lord, would you do that today? Would you guide and direct us perfectly as the shepherd of our souls? And give, us, give us the conviction that we need to hear what you say and follow through with our response. And Lord, may the result of that ultimately be your glory and not our own. May holiness ultimately have the goal of proclaiming who you are to the world. Because we will one day join with, with all the saints and declare your praise. Revelation 4 and 5 are not about what we have done. They are not about how successfully we did this or that in our earthly life. Revelation 4 and 5 is 100% about what, what the Lamb of God has done. And we will praise you forever for who you are and what you have done to make us into your likeness. So Lord, have your way in our midst here in these moments to come. Be glorified through it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Please respond as you feel led.